Welcome to the Money Wise Women Show, brought to you by MoneyMorphosis.com. Are you ready to be inspired to upgrade your financial skills? Listen to feminine leaders sharing practical advice and valuable insights. Shift your money mindset, improve communication skills, and learn financial management tips. Although we do not provide investment advice, you can check out MoneyMorphosis.com. That's money morphosis.com to find simple ways to boost your true wealth. Hello and welcome. It's Crystal Arnold, founder of Money Morphosis and your hostess of the Money Wise Women Show. Hmm. Are you ready for a new story of humanity and our evolution as a species? And really, are you curious about what our potential is as humans collaborating and creating together with greater intention and I know that I am and the more that I focus on inspiring leaders and people who are expanding our horizon of what we can sense is coming next I I can stay inspired despite the challenging uh, political financial news um, so this is why I am super excited to have our guest, uh, Michelle Holiday here today. And she um, is truly a thought leader. And as I recently um, read her book um, about the, called The Age of Thrivability, and also listened to her TED Talk, I was super um, fired. It felt affirming to me um, about my sense of of what mm, living systems uh, look like. And she has a very clear um, articulation of of what these living systems look like and and what this means for us very practically as individuals, um, as organizations, and, and as Uh, humanity moving forward. So let's um, dive right in. I'll tell you a little bit more about Michelle here. For the past two decades, Michelle Holliday has inspired with her thought leadership and vision. As a writer, presenter, facilitator, and consultant, her work centers around thriveability, which is a set of perspectives, intentions, and practices based on a view of organizations and communities as dynamic living systems. And so she brings people together and helps them discover ways they can feel more alive, connect more meaningfully with each other, and serve life more powerfully and effectively through their work. Uh, Michelle has quite a professional history. Uh, the first part of her career was in brand strategy, working internationally with Coca-Cola and H.J. Hines. And then the second part of her career focused on employee engagement, consulting for a range of organizations in Washington, D.C., 
and she now lives in uh, Montreal and combines both of these disciplines as the founder of Cambium Consulting. Um, and she uh, also has a master's degree in international marketing um, <clears throat> and a bachelor's degree in Russian studies. So she has lived in um, 19 cities around the world and truly has a global perspective. And I am so thrilled to have her here today to share her wisdom. And um, Michelle, I'd love to begin just um, if you could share a little bit with us about the work that you do with clients and, and, um, and why that is so effective for people, the way that you approach organizational development. Welcome. Thank you so much, Crystal. Thanks for having me. And uh, sure, I'd be happy to, to talk about my work sort of on the surface level at a, at a very um, tangible and practical level. It, it does combine the two disciplines that you mentioned in my bio. So I'm, I'm helping um, clients create one cohesive strategy for their customer engagement and for their employee engagement and, and all of the operations and systems and structures that connect the two. Uh, so when we see an organization as a living system, it doesn't make sense anymore to keep customer strategy and employee strategy separate from each other. It doesn't make sense to, to address the infrastructure of the organization separately either. It's one system and all of that, all of those strategies need to be integrated and coherent. So that's kind of language that, that people are generally familiar with and it's true, this is really what I do, but there's, there's a bit more underlying all of that as well that is inviting a different mindset. If we see an organization as a living system, then that shifts our role from managers and um, engineers and controllers to gardeners or stewards. I really like this concept of stewardship that is recognizing we can't control everything in a living system, just like parents. We can't control our children, but we can create the fertile conditions for them to thrive. And the same, the same mindset and, and stance is really appropriate in our organizations too. And that brings up different behaviors, different actions as well. So I'm also bringing those new behaviors and, and observations and, and um, mindsets to my clients as well, helping them develop those abilities to sense what's needed and to be in service of, of the living system that is the organization that includes customers, that includes employees and more. Mm. Yeah. I really uh, appreciate your holistic, heart-centered uh, approach and just see why it's been so effective. And, um, you know, I'm so curious. You said uh, cultivating the fertile conditions for thriving. And so I'd mm -hmm. love to hear a little bit more about why you are so passionate about this and, and what that really looks like. Mm-hmm. Well, part of my answer is why why wouldn't we why wouldn't we aim for thriving? And the fact is that we don't. We we aren't in the habit. There's something in our culture historically um, over the past hundred or two hundred years that has convinced us 
that we may not be worthy of thriving, but that's an unreasonable goal, that work and busyness are their own reward. So we, we set our sights on something less than thriving, on, on um, lesser goals of productivity or, or profitability. And those are fine. There's no reason not to um, move towards those. But when we stop short of aiming for thriving, then we get something less than thriving. So we, we see that in so many areas of our lives, that, that work continues to be somewhat toxic or, or very toxic, uh, and our communities are, are struggling and, and aren't nourishing to us and aren't nourishing to the biosphere either. And so uh, not only is aiming for thriving important on a personal level, but that's just sort of a, an obvious thing. Why shouldn't we every day ask, how could I thrive today? What would that look like? But it's really um, what's more effective and what's needed for organizations and, and for our survival if we're going to find our way out of the, the catastrophic challenges that we're facing as humanity. We're not able to to come to solutions aiming only for su- surviving or even sustaining. We don't find the, the creativity and the collaboration, the passion and energy that are needed if our sites are set only on uninspiring goals. We need the inspiration that comes from aiming for thriving, for something heroic, if we're going to find the solutions we need. Mm. Yes, uh, absolutely. I I totally can see how that, um, yeah, that shift in our mindset uh, that we deserve to thrive and give ourselves mm-hmm. permission to orient our actions, our beliefs, our behaviors um, towards that goal is um, is really what what's needed now to inspire the mm-hmm. heart of humanity. And what I have loved about mm-hmm. your book is just um, how it's it's so it's practical, it's pragmatic. There's the science behind all of this. It's not like you're just some idealist you know, talking about a utopia, you really bring us through like, this is, you know, achievable. And this is actually the the natural design. And so um, could you tell us a little bit more about the process of creating this book over the last 10, uh, 12 years or so? Mm-hmm. And um, just, you know, what's, um, yeah, just a little bit more about the creation of the book. Mm-hmm, sure. It was really important to me to use the language of the outgoing era, of the, the mechanistic era, uh, as a bridge to, and, and well, so that was one of my incentives. I, I thought that if I'm going to offer a pathway for people into a new era, uh, an age of thrivability, I need to use the language and logic that people are familiar with now. So that was, I, I appreciate that you recognized it, that you saw the the scientific basis and, and the pragmatism and the logic there. So uh, I, I think my journey began even more than 12 years ago when I was at Coca-Cola and, and was quite disillusioned with marketing. And, and Coca-Cola is one of the most effective and admired companies for its marketing and its brand strategy. But I, I just felt that I went into marketing for something quite different, for, for a, a real sense of relationship and connection with customers. And I had the sense that something more was possible 
but I wasn't seeing evidence of it around me, and certainly not at that company. Although in the years since, they've moved in that direction, as have, have many others, to be in conversation and relationship with customers. So at the time, I felt that um, it, it just wasn't present, but the potential was there. Uh, I also was disillusioned with corporate culture, uh, and, and I saw so many examples of internally competitive companies, and I, I just wondered, why is that? Why do we have that model? Um, so I moved into employee engagement, but even there, my clients, my consulting clients, were um, looking for quite a transactional relationship with their employees, too, and I thought, something is missing in all of this. And at the time, um, the sustainability movement was just getting started, so we were starting to recognize uh, that something was missing in uh, in all aspects of our lives and our behavior as, as consumers and, and citizens, but it seemed like we couldn't figure out what else was possible, how else could we live. So in all of that, my sense was that um, it was the story we have, this mechanistic story I referred to um, of the industrial era and, um, and beyond that tells us we're separate from everything. It's all just one big machine, the clockwork universe that is associated with Newton. Um, and my instinct was that there was more to the story, that there must also be life. We're clearly not just machines. And so wouldn't it make sense that our organizations are also not just machines? And so I went into uh, a year and a half of research I had an opportunity to, to focus on research for that time, and I went into biology most of all to understand what is life? What does it mean for something to be alive? What does it take for something alive to thrive? And where do we see those same characteristics in our organizations? I went into organizational theory and, um, and, and investigated what are the core conditions that have to be present if an organization is to thrive. And to my surprise and delight, I found a, a core set of conditions present across all living systems and organizations. And from there, I went further into the research in organizational theory in particular to identify um, those conditions in an organizational context. So I developed a consulting framework uh, that I, I don't describe in this book. I have another book in mind uh, to follow it, but that's what I use in my consulting work. But maybe um, back to my my journey, what surprised me in my research uh, that was initially very focused on organizations only was that I started to see those same patterns present everywhere I looked, and in particular uh, at the, 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 the level of the eras of humanity. So we have the, the hunter-gatherer era and the uh, the agricultural era, the uh, the industrial era, and then this new era that we haven't yet named. It's got lots of names, but none of them stick because we don't have really uh, an accurate story of what, what's, what's driving this new era. And so what I saw was that it's the same four patterns present at each of these eras. So it's as if humanity in general has been evolving as one living system, one living organism or, or ecosystem towards greater creativity and generativity, greater integration and wisdom, ultimately, greater capability. So um, that's part of my journey over these 12 years, and, and the journey of writing the book was, was discovering that 
going more deeply into that insight and, and understanding, making sure that it was true. You know, that was my first discovery, and, and I, I needed to be sure I wasn't just um, imagining things. Finding that it really makes sense if if these are core universal patterns of how life generates itself, life evolves, then it makes sense that it would be present at, at every level. There's this concept of fractals in which um, the same pattern is found, like broccoli. The, the closer you look at it um, or the further away that you see the same shape and pattern. So this is something that's, that's common throughout nature. And so um, a, a large part of the book is dedicated to uh, demonstrating that humanity is on the verge of or, or a few steps into this new era of greater wisdom and compassion and thriving, greater capability to thrive or thriveability, but that it's not guaranteed that we'll make it into that age of thrivability. In every era transition, um, there's always the, the, the pullback as well into um, into earlier stages, and uh, so we'll either move forward into an age of thrivability or fall back into a new dark ages, and, and this seems to be what has happened in all um, collapsed civilizations or in the dark ages in history, that we, we, we move back instead of forward into greater integration. So mm. uh, what I found in the journey, just to finish my answer to your question, is... Um, is actually a lot to be hopeful and encouraged about. And especially in the past few months, it, it took me a, a while to realize that this was actually a, a, positive, um, a positive trend. Over the years, as I share the, the discoveries I've made through my research, often people uh, are reluctant to embrace the idea that they're worthy of thriving. And um, they're also often quite comfortable. The urgency isn't really there. So this whole idea of thriving, it's, it sounds nice, but uh, it, it's a change, and change is sometimes difficult. So maybe I, I, I don't have to embrace this, this change, but suddenly we have no choice. You know, things have, have gotten less and less comfortable in the last few months, uh, in the U.S. in particular. And so we have to start asking the more challenging questions about what else is possible and, and what um, what do we really value and care about, and uh, and how can we work together better? So, over the journey uh, that I've been on with this book, I'm I'm more excited than ever to bring it out into the world. Mm. It is so incredibly timely as a guiding light that can be, you know, part of the story of this new era. And that's why I have been so excited to, uh, to read it and connect with you. And, you know, let's, let's talk about this, our ability to hold paradox a little bit. You know, mm-hmm. you've talked about describing in transitional times the importance of, you know, developing our capacities to integrate many different perspectives and and how we're kind of evolving to be able to hold paradox more effectively. And I'm curious, you know, how, how this relates, you know, this show is, is about money and finance. And so I find it especially fascinating, you know, how we are integrating the feminine and masculine approaches and perspective, you know, in, in both governance and finance. 
and how can mm-hmm. we um, hold the paradoxes of today? Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Well, all living systems are, by their nature, paradoxes. If we think about our own bodies, we are a collection of cells, of, of individual parts, but we're also a whole, each of us is a whole being that is so much more than just a collection of cells, right? And, and we have new capabilities that appear at the level of, of the wholeness of us um, that you don't find at the level of the cells. So there's a paradox in itself. We are parts, but we are also wholes, um, and we are processed. We are, there, there's um, a famous inventor, uh, Buckminster Fuller, who talked about being not a noun but a verb, not a human being but a human becoming. So we have this impermanent and constantly changing nature, and at the same time we feel quite stable, and and we are. So all living systems have this element of of paradox, and it's one of the challenges, and one of those changes I talked about that's uncomfortable for for people to shift into it. It's so much easier to think of and see an organization as a machine and to imagine that we have total control over it, that we can predict, set budgets, and uh, and know that those will be exactly the actions that will happen and the outcomes that will will come out of it. And, and that's not always true and that's not always helpful to attempt to control in every way. Again, like our, our children, uh, the more we attempt to control every aspect, the, the more we stifle them and, and their potential and, and capability. So leaders as stewards need to be in this practice of, um, and, and really it is it's an ongoing practice of, of being in the paradox of control and, um, and non-control. And there isn't a formula, there isn't a prescription that I or anyone can offer. Here is exactly the, the right amount of control and the right amount of freedom. It, it, this is what makes it a practice. It's a, a practice of, of sensing and responding, of prototyping and learning and, and adapting. Some control is absolutely needed. Budgets are, are, are not going to go away and, and shouldn't, but um, there's a need also for curiosity and a spirit of learning and play if a, a living organization is to thrive and grow. And, and I would say it's the same in our, in our personal lives as well and in our personal finances. We need to, to set, uh, set targets and goals but also be open to sensing what's emerging, what's needed, and uh, what's the real incentive behind whatever goals we're setting for ourselves, what's the story that we want to live into, uh, and, and be open to how things need to shift along the way. Does that make sense? Totally. Um, yes, I I really appreciate the the perspective of of those nuances that there's so many um, forces of the mainstream messaging that's trying to polarize and you know make things black and white and you know, blame and, and when we move into this, you know, childlike curiosity and, and playfulness, whether it's with our relationship with money and our business or, or in our personal lives, um, that just opens up 
a lot more possibility for transformation and that mm-hmm. we can, uh, yeah, access greater wisdom and, and ability to, you know, ultimately to connect with each other, just this desire, um, you know, that, that I've heard throughout your work too of, um, just the importance of relationship as foundational to the living system and how the mechanical reductionist view was all about the parts and the measurable pieces of the economy. And um, I have found it's it's so important to take that more holistic perspective and and redefine what's most valuable for us. Um, You know, this is why I created the True Wealth template, which says, yes, there's financial aspect to wealth, but the three other areas of um, inner wealth, relational wealth, and environmental wealth uh, give us a better sense of, you know, what our assets and liabilities are beyond just money. And so, um, let's see, I, I just agree with, with reframing and uh, what, so what is this power of recreating our, our story of what's valuable and what's important and, and how can this help us in the transition here? Mm-hmm. Well, I love the, uh, the true wealth template and, and the, the, the aspects of wealth that you're describing really might be my description of thriving. It's, it's, expanding our um, what we're aiming for, our goals to include the intangible and the spiritual and the relational. So I, I love that. Um, and I'm just thinking that you asked also about the masculine and feminine. I wanted to respond to that too. Um, that traditionally masculine approaches to finance and governance are exclusively focused on the very tangible and action-oriented and um, and things that are more related to the parts than the whole. And the feminine is stereotypically thought to be more receptive and open and, and accepting. And so truly there is an integration that's needed. I, I put a lot of emphasis on um, conversation and story. You're just now asking me about Story, I think, and um, the, there's something in the mechanistic industrial era approach to our lives, to our work, to our finances that um, sucks all the life out. If we know this, how the story goes in advance, then where is the life in it? Where is the curiosity and the play and the, the active um, contribution and quest? You know, there's there's not much meaning left in robotically acting out a five-year plan. But when we are playing a role within an unfolding story that we have some intentions about, uh, but not we don't necessarily know all of how it's going to unfold. There's there's tremendous meaning in that in in being part of a quest, in in the spirit of prototyping and playfulness and learning and joy and and thriving. So um, these are traditionally feminine concepts, um, traditionally the, the soft stuff, but it's, it's really the most transformational, the most generative and powerful aspects of our work and our lives. 
So it's a lot of what I bring in. I help um, people, individuals and organizations, craft a manifesto. And it's really the an articulation of the story that they are living out together. And I, I'm shifting from uh, writing manifestos with my clients as statements of intention and, and moving into um, questions, mission questions rather than mission statements because of this, uh, that the power of questions and curiosity and, and conversation, continuing the conversation. Um, there's one organization, I, I may have shared the story with you, Crystal, uh, in, in which four organizations were merged and part of what I had them explore together was what's the one conversation we all want to have with the world. And that, that was very powerful for them to, to come to a shared vision and mission. Uh, though we didn't use those words, but um, yeah, story, conversation, curiosity at play are all so fundamental to bringing life back into our lives, into our work and our uh, and, and our communities and, and our personal lives. Hmm. Yes, it's it's amazing when organizations, you know, find and communicate that why, and that just describe mm-hmm. what they're doing, um, the power that mm-hmm. that really mo- moves people and and connects on an emotional level, and. Mm-hmm. Um, Yes, there is incredible um, power in in just um, the questions that we ask. I'm I'm really glad you brought up that point because uh, so many people are all about the answers and and being right. And what if we were just you know uh, curious and and asked questions. What, do you have guidance for people about what what makes a good question or how this may apply in their own business if they're entrepreneurs? Hmm. That's a good question. <laughs> there, there's a real art to crafting a powerful question, and it shouldn't be a yes or no question. It's um, part of what I start with in in a manifesto crafting process is who are you, who are you together? In the case of uh, of organizations, who are you, what do you want, and what has to be true if you're to get what you want? And then what you want is not just um, we want to be number one or we want this much money, but what is the, the change you want to contribute to? What do you stand for? So it, it, that may be a good starting point for for people or or organizations, what do you stand for, and what's the change you you'd like to contribute to? What are you curious about that you you might be able to accomplish together that you couldn't accomplish alone? You know what what brings you together and mm. gives you passion. Yes, those might be good starting points. Wonderful, thank you. Um, let's. Uh, let's take a quick break here and then when we come back I'd love to explore a little bit more about the power of group intention and the ways that sharing our stories and um, you know ways that we can bring forth our collective intelligence and and how that really will serve us to um, bring in this new era of thriving 
So we'll be back in just a moment to talk with Michelle about that. Do you get choked up and flushed talking about money? Don't let fear and shame stop you from sharing your value. Speak up, sister. Find out how to boost your financial communication skills at www.findyourmoneyvoice.com. Perhaps you're like Gwen, a budding creative entrepreneur who wants to provide for her family, but she has a tough time expressing her needs. She chronically undercharges and lays awake at night with money stress. With Crystal's Find Your Money Voice training, she found renewed confidence speaking her self-worth. Transform beliefs, behaviors, and skills with money. With greater clarity and focus, Gwen more confidently negotiated solid agreements and increased her business earnings with the trainings found at findyourmoneyvoice.com. Hello and welcome back. We are here with Michelle Holiday and exploring what is our capacity as individuals, as groups coming together with greater intention to craft a story of thriving in this new era. And we have both seen the incredible um, transformation that happens when people come together um, to speak authentically and vulnerably and, you know, especially around tender subjects like money and things that are often cloaked by shame. Um, because we really do, uh, Michelle mentioned how important stewardship is. And I totally agree that the more we can look at how we collectively steward our resources and honor the commons and things that are so valuable that we must protect them like the water and um, the clean air and our seeds. And so we are um, obviously both passionate about bringing these conversations, you know, both in the workplace, in the living room, in bigger group uh, workshops to facilitate transformation and greater personal awareness. And so I'm curious, uh, Michelle, what your thoughts are about, you know, the power of group intention and how we can more effectively bring forth our collective intelligence. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. There's, there's something very powerful in being part of a group with shared intention. And it's hard to understand. We all have experienced it. Most of us have experienced it and know that there's something there. Even though we we seem to be physically separate from each other, how can there possibly be life among us as if we are one living ecosystem? Uh, it, It seems sort of counterintuitive, but Scientifically, uh, there's, I, I write about this very briefly in the book, physical need for belonging, for social interaction and connection. And the, the risk of being isolated is as great as smoking. So if you smoke and you are isolated, it's a toss-up whether you should join a club or give up smoking. Either way, you're, you're sort of at an equal level of, <laughs> of benefit. 
So, you know, that's powerful. There's something there in, you know, the power of being part of a group. And the more we are engaged with this group and aligned with a group, uh, the more benefit we get from it. So, you know, we felt that, that the power of belonging. So there, there are personal benefits to being part of a group, and, and there's reason to, um, to believe that there's life at the level of the group. So uh, in my work, I talk about listening for the voice of the whole. So I'm listening to individuals, and I'm inviting them into conversation, and I'm inviting them to notice what are the themes that we're hearing across everything that, that we're saying, across all the individual voices, what is the whole of us trying to communicate and, and how can we be in service of that? We do take care of the parts. We have to make sure that the parts are healthy and, and, um, and stewarded as well. But at the same time, we have this paradox that we, we also need to take care of the whole and be in service of it. So uh, another way of thinking about that is collective intelligence. There is something um, that is wiser and smarter when we, we put our heads together. Two heads are better than one, and, and there's more than that. There's, there's a level of intelligence that, that uh, comes into play when we have shared intention and we engage in practices of conversation and exploration to identify what, what, what's the, the wisdom that's present at the level of the whole. So um, am I answering your question? Was there something more that you'd like me to say about that? Let's see. Well, I think what you just described is um, is part of what I would create what I call a life-affirming economy, which is, you mm-hmm. know, in contrast to this extractive, competitive, secretive, economy, which is extracting value from our community. And, you know, I grew up in Vermont where we had town hall meetings and there was a sense Mm -hmm. of coming together and how do we steward our resources and and what decisions can we make for the benefit of future generations. And uh, it's it's very, you know, with... hmm, so as as we create a, a space for creating meaning within our communities, then we invite uh, people to engage and and offer their unique genius and and perspective. And so I feel like this is really important right now because uh, in such a where humans have been commodified so much, we've, we've lost the commons, which includes our ability to come together and, and steward resources. So, um, yes, I don't know if there's a question in there. Do you have anything <laughs> else to say about I love that? It. I do, yeah. It's funny. I, uh, I live in Montreal, and my daughter had a week vacation last week, and so we just drove south. Uh, for a spontaneous adventure road trip and found ourselves in Montpelier on March, um, what was it, March 10th, the day of the statewide town meetings. And I was so excited. I said, we've got to go to one. Let's, let's have this experience because it's, I think, unusual these days to have a statewide town meeting like that. Um, so we were in Montpelier. And unfortunately, we went to the town hall, but they don't have the the meetings the way that small communities do. So we 
we, we got to see people gathering to vote, but not being in that space of the commons, as you're describing. And that's, it's a feminine concept, right? We were talking about that earlier. It's a, a receptive space that we all can steward. We all are responsible for where we can all come together in relationship. So it's a, a, an important and fascinating concept. And, and there is a structure, a design that was crafted, these town meetings, for people to to show up and, and be connected in relationship uh, and, and shared intention. So it's a really wonderful example. I love that you brought that up. And, and mm-hmm. maybe I'll share the story of those four institutions that were merged and, and we asked them, what's the one conversation you want sure, to that's have great. with the world? Yeah. All right. Uh, because it, it, it ties back to some of what you were just saying. So uh, this is a, a case study that's mentioned in the book, it's four um, nature museums here in Montreal, a biodome, which is uh, a collection of ecosystems under one roof. So you come in and you're in the, nat- in the tropical rainforest and then you move into the, a mountain ecosystem. So there's the biodome, an insectarium, a planetarium, and the botanical gardens. And those are all owned by the city. They were four separate institutions. And the mayor several years ago, decided to merge them administratively so that some finance and administration people could be fired and um, save money. And and they're all nature museums, so what's the difference? And I'm sure there was more um, gentleness than that. But the the kind of bottom line of the story is they, they were brought together in one overarching administrative organization that was called the Montreal Nature Museum. And no one ever latched on to that name. The, the people within those four institutions never thought of, of themselves as the Montreal Nature Museums. If you asked anyone in Montreal, they wouldn't have known what you were talking about if you, if you told them that, that name. So the mayor recognized the need to uh, create one compelling brand that represented all of them uh, and that would really help put Montreal on the map. So he hired a new, very charismatic and visionary director to lead the the merged entity. And it was that leader who then hired me and a colleague to uh, not only create the new brand, but to to create a cohesive vision and culture across the four institutions. So the first thing we did was to bring all 450 people together for a day. They had never been all together. And, And we used this perspective of the organization, this merged entity as a living ecosystem. And it was really exciting to be able to share that perspective with a bunch of biologists and, and natural scientists. They, they, of all people, really could appreciate that view. And so we, we had them in very creative conversations throughout the day about the fertile conditions that, that would be needed if they were to accomplish what they wanted to together, if they were to be in that conversation with the world that they wanted to be in. And um, so at the end of that day, then, my colleague and I crafted or drafted a manifesto based on what we heard and brought it back to the directors of the different institutions and and the, the one visionary charismatic guy and asked them, is this what what they said, what you all said, is, does it seem authentic and accurate? And they said, it's really good. We like it. There's just one problem. You used the word life. 
and we don't talk about life. We talk about nature because we're scientists. And, and nature is out there and it's observable and tangible. We can measure it and, and document it. But life is amorphous and, and we don't really know what it is. It might be spiritual. So could you just swap those two words? Take out nature, sorry, take out life and, and put in nature instead. And so my colleague and this director and I, we all said, wow, this is fascinating. There's something really important here. Your goal ultimately is to change the behavior of the visitors who come to your museums to get them to care more for nature, to, to take care of it and the environment. But if nature is out there somewhere, then that's a, a tough sell, you know, to, to convince them to change their behavior. So, um, and, and, and if you're a biologist and, and you can't talk comfortably about life, then who can? This is really interesting. And, and, and my thought was uh, maybe there's a connection between our inability to talk about life and thriving and our decreasing ability to sustain life on the planet. So, you know, our message to them was maybe this is actually the conversation you all need to have with the world. Let's talk about life. So it took them about six months of continued conversation and soul searching to come to terms with this. But in the end, the, the brand, the name that they chose for themselves instead of Montreal Nature Museums was Espace pour la Vie in French, uh, and in English it's the space for life. It mm. sounds better and it's sort of really powerful in French, but it's even powerful in English. They are the space for life altogether. And for them, it's not a brand. It's a conversation. It's a movement. It's, it's an invitation for people to recognize our opportunity to create a space for life in our homes, in our gardens, in our work. And, and my first thought was uh, there isn't a good translation into French for the word thrivability. But I thought, maybe that's it. Espace pour la vie. This is really the opportunity. The, the invitation into the practice of thrivability is really about crafting your organization or your community or your family as a space for life, a space in which life can thrive, to recognize that you have that design capability. So they... Wow. Uh, yeah, it's really wonderful. So they changed the, the name, but then they also changed their organizational structure to be more aligned with the, the conditions for life to thrive. Um, for example, they, they brought human resources out of under finance and administration, which is very common in, in organizations, that that's where human resources go, goes. And they made it its own pillar of the organizational chart, people and culture. And they made... Um, visitor engagement, another, cult, another pillar, and infrastructure, the connective relational space, uh, the third pillar. They changed how they, they conduct meetings. They moved into much greater transparency within and also across all four of the institutions. They, they transformed their exhibits to be far more um, interactive and relational, uh, in, including uh, activities that that go out into Montreal and, and around the world. And maybe the most exciting aspect is that they had tried to raise enough money to renovate the planetarium for nine years. They tried for nine years and they failed to renovate this very outdated planetarium. And within a year of releasing this manifesto and, uh, and 
choosing this new name, they were able to raise $190 million and build a brand new planetarium and more. They've got four other major projects. So it's been really powerful for them. And here's, here's an example of the power of story and group intention and, um, and being open to the, the voice of the whole. This was not something that came from any one of them. It really was a process of listening to collective intelligence and, and urge and wisdom. So I mm. love that, that story. That is, is so powerful. I'm really glad you shared that because it just demonstrates, you know, in a very tangible way, the power of, of what we've been talking about on a large scale and how to accept, acknowledge, and invite the power of life uh, into our lives and organizations is um, truly profound. I, I just love how you describe thrivability as the, the space for life, and that's truly really touching. Um, so many of the people listening uh, may be entrepreneurs and, you know, um, I'm, I'm curious if you'd like to describe um, some about the common challenges that you see um, in entrepreneurs as, in regards to their relationship with money. And then also share, you know, if you'd like to share some kind of practice or suggestion uh, that may help people kind of integrate this into their lives. Mm-hmm. Yes. What I often see is a struggle uh, to bring together our um, our noble aspirations, those the story and intention that I'm I'm describing, with um, the role of money. Very often, it feels conflicting somehow, and I, I'm often asked, "Is it okay still to be for profit?" Does this all apply only to nonprofit organizations, or is there a need to to um, shift to that status? And my my answer is no. That um, there are assumptions currently woven into our market system that are contrary to life. But uh, as long as we shift our thinking and our stories, uh, the the market system, in my opinion, is still um, viable and valuable, and profit is is uh, a resource like uh, joy and the absence of violence. It is a a condition that is is useful and and in many cases necessary. I think of profit like leftovers. You know that if there's food left over, it invites creativity and sharing. I might make a new dish that I hadn't tried before. I might invite my neighbors over to help finish the the meal, or I might generously share it with someone who doesn't have enough. So uh, profit is is so often a helpful thing as long as the thinking uh, that guides our use of it is aligned with life, is in service of life. So that's the, the, the core challenge that comes to mind as I um, as I work with entrepreneurs, um, maybe another is the need for patience. Money brings a lot of stress, um, and there's a 
it's it's so easy to say and hard to practice, but there there's value in finding patience uh, and doing the right thing with faith that the money will come. There's a story, a case study in in my book uh, written by the founder of a language school, and he talks about the four um, pillars of their what they've found to be successful in their work. And the final one is is faith that when we do good, it will come back to us. So there's something there um, to breathe into the stress and uh, mm. and just know that it, it, it'll be okay one way or another and with the, the spirit of learning and curiosity uh, that you can get through the stress. So you also asked about practices, I think. And mm-hmm that um, that come to mind the first is uh, mindfulness and and all of the aspects of mindfulness meaning whatever works for you whether it's meditation or um, listening to finding your money voice the the series crystal that you're offering i i found that really valuable to uh, to be present and, and aware of my own assumptions and um, and intentions. So, uh, and, and finding my way to self-compassion. So, whatever practices you you can find that feel comfortable for you to be present to your own assumptions, your thoughts, your intentions, and and signals, intuition. That's the first set of practices that I find extremely important in this work of stewardship. Uh, the second is um, everything, all of the information gathering uh, practices that that have been present in business for decades. But we don't throw those away. Um, so spreadsheets and accounting and tracking sales and doing surveys, all of those are still useful. We're, we're, we're adding the um, what we might call the feminine practices of tapping into the less tangible messages from our bodies, from our intuition as well. But we don't throw those, um, the tangible ones away either. We integrate them. We bring them together. And then the third set of practices is prototyping. So bringing those um, feminine and masculine approaches together, integrating them, and then acting and uh, experimenting, learning in the spirit of, of curiosity and play. So those are three types of practices I would recommend. Excellent. Those all, yes, I, if, if people, um, yes, uh, approach those, uh, you'll be amazed at the transformation that's possible. I just feel like it, as we open and, you know, are receptive to new ways of being, it, it really doesn't have to be years of challenging, you know, therapy. And we're really coming to this place where, you know, transformation is happening quite quickly with a willingness and, and openness and um, appropriate guidance. Um, so speaking of that, uh, tell us a little bit more about if people are interested in your book, where they can find that and also what they may expect from reading it. Mm, thank you. So the book's website is www.ageofthrivability.com, as if it's all one word, Age of Thrivability. It's also available on every Amazon site globally. 
as a um, as a printed book or as a Kindle book. And if you're in the U.S., the Harvard Bookstore has it uh, available as well. And um, so if you'd like to support local independent bookstores, you can go on their website. It's harvard.com and, uh, and order it there and they'll ship it. So um, those are some ways to get the book. And what you can expect is about the first half of the book is this um, the, the set of milestones that show we are moving into a new era of thrivability, of, of greater creativity, generativity, thriving, wisdom, and compassion. And then the, the rest of the book is uh, a collection of case studies of stories and then um, what it means for you. What does it mean to be a steward? Um, what does it mean to embrace death and, and, um, and regeneration as part of thriving? Those are still present. It's not that only ever all joy and, and rainbows and unicorns. Um, so uh, it's an exploration, exploration of different themes along those lines and what it means for you. Mm. Yes, and I, I find this uh, just so clear and accessible, like you're, just your high-level intellectual uh, thinking and, you know, innovative perspective on this has synthesized so many fields of, of study you know, um, that, and yet it's so accessible and warm and just feels like uh, it's a very engaging and uh, easy read. And yet I find myself like savoring it because the ideas are so profound and and I like feel my brain reorienting and rewiring to, um, to allow this possibility of an age of thrivability. I just am super inspired by what you bring forth. And so I really encourage people to, to get this book, whether you are, you know, um, an academic or not, or whether you're just an average person who's curious about what is possible. And so, you know, in these closing minutes, I'd just love to hear any uh, final thoughts, inspiration, encouragement that you have for listeners. Mm. Well, thank you so much for saying that about my book. That's just my dream, that someone would say exactly what you said. So thank you, thank you. Um, I guess my, my closing inspiration would be just even... Think about the rest of your day and what's one thing you could do for yourself that would feel like thriving. Just that is powerful. So that's my invitation. Mm. Yes, everyone, um, encourage you to to take that to heart and ask yourself that question today and each day and see how that changes your life and. Um, just really encourage everyone to create these fertile conditions as Michelle talks about for thriving and to really engage with curiosity, playfulness, um, uh, an open heart uh, with, with people in your workplace and, and home. And really um, it's, it's a time where I feel like we can 
dream big about what is possible and um, and just what would I like to say that we are powerful creators and mm-hmm. the more that we choose to connect with intention and have meaningful conversations um, about what is most important to us, then we invite the transformation to a more beautiful world um, that we know in our hearts is possible. And so I encourage everyone to, to have those conversations that stretch you out of your comfort zone and, you know, just really be willing and be willing to change and to align with the living systems that we are um, part of. And so it's, just um, super inspiring, Michelle. I really enjoyed our conversation. And thank you for bringing this um, story of a new era forward today. It's definitely more timely than ever. So everyone, hope you are inspired and ready to thrive today. Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, the biggest compliment you can give us is to subscribe to the show and rate and review our podcast at iTunes. Be sure to visit www.moneymorphosis.com. That's money-m-o-r-p-h-o-s-i-s.com to join the growing community of empowered women who are dedicated to creating the true wealth they deserve.